Do you guys know what a life hack is? Is this a term you're familiar with? Well, my cell phone charger cable kept falling behind my dresser. And so every time I would unplug my cell phone, it would fall back behind the dresser, and so I would have to reach around and grab it. And, and it just became a hassle. So I, I asked Google for some help. I Googled, you know, life hacks for this problem. So, so what a life hack is, is it simple tricks or solutions to common everyday problems. And Google showed me on this life hack page, if you grab a, a binder clip and you, you clip it to the back of your dresser, you can feed the cable up through the little metal parts and then flop one in down and voila, your cable will stay put. It's great, right? We, we love anything that helps us overcome life's little problems, any little tricks of the trade to just make life a little bit easier. So do we have any spiritual life hacks that we as believers who are seeking to follow the Lord might implement to just make discipleship a teeny bit easier? No, we don't. I'm sorry to say we don't. That, that, is, that is not the way God designed discipleship. But we have something far better than a life hack. We have a living hope. We have a living hope. So in the Gospel of Mark, up until this point in our study, the primary focus has been on discerning who Jesus is as the Son of God. Who is this Jesus, the Son of God? And then beginning in uh, 8.27, the focus shifts through about 1052. And the focus shifts to what it means for us to follow him. Specifically, we as his disciples accepting and adopting Jesus' mission as our own. So this is where we are context-wise in the, the present section of the Gospel of Mark. And if I was to summarize this adoption of Jesus' mission as our own as we follow him, it would be suffer first, glory later. Suffer first, glory later. And there's no life hack for that. There's no trick to somehow make that easier. There's no shortcut. But we have something far weightier, something far greater to pull us forward, and it's our living hope. So we're going to be focusing primarily in Mark chapter 9 today. But we're going we're gonna to start our study in the latter part of chapter 8 because it dovetails with what we're going to look at in Mark 9. It it flows into this, this concept that we're focusing on. And so the question we're going to be wrestling with this morning is, how do we endure our present suffering as followers of the Lord Jesus? If there's no life hack, and we're talking about this living hope, how do we endure as we follow our Lord? And so we're going to break this up into two parts. First, we're going to look at this way of discipleship. 
Some of you here this morning might be thinking, I've got a great relationship with God. Why would I need a life hack? I, this living hope thing sounds nice, but I'm not really suffering as I follow the Lord. So we're going to look at this way of discipleship. I'm going to provide a little validation to that comment, suffer first, glory later, because that's a heavy comment. And then we're also going to look at this living hope. What's so great about having a living hope? And what is that? And it's all within the context of, of how we endure as we follow our Lord Jesus. And so the way of discipleship, this is our first point, the way of discipleship. The pattern of Jesus' mission that we are to follow is denying ourselves and seeking to serve the last and the least. The pattern of Jesus' mission that we are to accept and adopt is denying ourselves. It's an inner attitude. And seeking to serve the last and the least. Both of which Jesus did perfectly as he modeled this for us. So let's first look at this inner attitude, denying ourselves. This is going to be in a section from Mark chapter 8, which we're just going to kind of skip through because I know we, we were in 8 last week. But it's very important. It, it lays the foundation for this entire section on accepting and adopting uh, Jesus' mission as it's a pattern for our own as his disciples. So read with me first in verse 31 in Mark chapter 8. And what we're going to see here is this is the Lord's first passion prediction. And it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. So this is a clear declaration of the Lord's mission to die for sinners. He came to save us. In verses 32 through 33, what we're going to see is the disciples' rejection of that mission. And in a way, a failure for them to adopt what he's trying to teach them to themselves as they follow him. So read with me verses 32 through 33. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning... And seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So again, Jesus clearly said, This is my mission. The disciples said, Uh-uh. And in doing so, they were failing to accept and adopt what he's trying to model for them for themselves as they follow him. And then finally, in verses 34 through 38, we're going to see the Lord's explicit instruction for what it means for a disciple to follow Jesus in faithful obedience. Verses 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So we're going to spend just a little bit of time on this final portion from chapter 8 as we talk about the way of discipleship. And again, the focus in this particular section is self-denial, that inner attitude with an outward expression of bearing one's cross. And we see that said in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So what does that mean? Well, on one hand, it truly means exactly what you see. That as followers of the Lord, we should be prepared to die for him in the sense of not abandoning our proclamation of faith in the Lord, not abandoning him as we will see the disciples do in the gospels. And this would not have been a shocker to the original audience of the gospel of Mark. They were Christians in Rome that were suffering severe persecution at the hands of Nero. In fact, they were being crucified. So they would have grabbed a hold of that and said, yes, that is what it means to follow the Lord, is that you are following him where he leads, even to the point of death. But for us, although that is true, it is also this inner attitude, this willingness to set aside one's goals, one's aspirations, and one's desires. It's not so much a denial of things to oneself. It's a denial of one's self unto the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to self, inner attitude, but if the Lord wills, to physically die. So this is heavy, this is weighty. This is intense stuff. This is the way of discipleship as we follow the Lord. Sorry, guys. Now, why would the Lord call us to deny ourselves? We know our God is holy. We know our God requires us to follow him, but... What, what is the design in this? Well, it's for us to become more like Christ. But we see here that there is joy to be had in this. That this is not some slugfest that we just have to kind of march through, keeping our head to the ground, fists clenched. That in the midst of denying ourselves, in the midst of bearing our cross, that there is joy to be had. And so let's, let's look at that here. In verses 35 through 38, this is what we would call a paradox. It says that whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. This is a paradox. What does this mean? It means that if you are willing to lose your life by self-denial 
and by bearing your cross, which is the essence of discipleship, you will gain in this life abundance, abundance of the character of Christ, an abundance of a close walk with the Lord. You will experience his presence in remarkable ways that continue to overflow in your heart no matter your circumstance. And we also see that there will be a reward in the life to come. And we see that where in verse 38, the Lord says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. To be ashamed means in some sense to reject, to say, no, I, I believe in the Lord. I do. I know I need his salvation, but I'm going to go on living my life however I want. That does not bring his name honor. That brings his name shame. And there will be a loss of reward when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So there's, there's a paradox here. And in this paradox, it, it might be countercultural because the way of the world is as much for myself as I can get, putting myself first. Who would want to suffer? Who would want to deny themselves and bear their cross, bear what the world would say is foolishness? It's not illogical, however. It might be countercultural, but it's not illogical. Anytime we orientate our life in accord to the instruction of the author of life, I can guarantee you, you will experience an abundance of life. So though it might be a paradox, though it might be countercultural, it's rational and it's wise and it's good to have this attitude of self-denial and this willingness to, to bear your cross, to go where the Lord leads no matter the cost. So this is the first aspect of the way of discipleship that we're going to look at this morning is this attitude of self-denial and this outward expression of cross-bearing. Let's look at the second component that I would like to talk about, humble service, willing to humbly serve the last and the least. It's a ladybug. He's up in Adam this morning, isn't he? We're going to be looking in uh, Mark 9, so we're going to skip, okay? We're going to skip over, and it's by intention. We're going to be in Mark 9, verses 30 through 37. And here, it's very interesting. We're going to see the same structure as before. We're going to see a passion prediction. We're going to see the disciples' rejection of that. And then we're going to see the Lord's instruction on the way of discipleship. And we're going to read this straight through, 9 through 37. 9, 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to see, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Okay, in verse 31, we see the passion prediction. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. This is the Lord's service unto us. Poor sinners, the last and the least. Him dying in our place that we might live. So this phrase is it's ironic on one hand. It's ironic because the phrase son of man from Daniel Chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. The Son of Man receives from the hand of the Father authority to rule the whole world. But here we see the Son of Man giving Himself over to the authority of men to die. It's ironic, but it's not outside of God's plan. This giving over this to be delivered into the hands of men. It's what theologians call a divine passive, meaning it was the Lord's hand, the Father, God the Father's hand, who gave up His Son so that He might serve us, so that we might have forgiveness of sins. And it's also instructive for us because it's a pattern of how we, those who follow the Lord, are to humbly serve others. Put the needs of the least and the last ahead of our own, and even at a great cost. Jesus provides yet uh, another paradox in explaining this to us. The, the so what, or for us creatures who want to know how it works or, or why it's this way, he explains it to us in his, his grace and his mercy. In verse 35, he says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Again, this is very countercultural. Against the backdrop in verses 33 and 34 of the disciples bickering over pecking order, who's the greatest, Jesus flips this on its head. And he says that the highest status in the kingdom of God It's appointed for the lowly, humble servant, which Jesus modeled for us. The one who had all things given to him, gave up all things that he might serve us. So he illustrates this not only in his own life, but he calls a child into the midst of this discussion in verse 36. He takes a child into his arms. Now, a child in that culture represented a person lowest on the social scale. Someone who has no ability for self-determination. Someone entirely dependent on the welfare of others. 
And he instructs us in verse 37 that when we serve in this attitude of humility, the lowest and the least, we're to do so in his name. We're to do so as his representatives. To serve in his name in this context is doing as he would do. Doing as he would do. So he's essentially saying, you want to be raised up to a high status in the kingdom of God? Is that what you aspire? Go low. Go low. So again, the way of discipleship is countercultural. But there's abundant life now. There's reward in the kingdom to come. And though it might be countercultural, it's not irrational. When I lived in Austin, the city, there was a, a great construction boom going on. There still is. That city's growing like crazy. But I was able to walk around when I was walking around campus or walking to and from my apartment. I noticed that when they would build these skyscrapers, that the deeper they would dig into the ground to lay the foundation, the higher up they would then build that tower. I noticed if it was just a a new apartment complex, maybe three to four stories, they wouldn't dig down so deep. But for some of these massive skyscrapers, they would tunnel deep into the ground long before they began to build up high into the sky. That's what the Lord is doing in us now. He's digging down deep into us by way of following the Lord through self-denial, through bearing our cross, through humble service, so that when the kingdom does come, we might be rewarded and have a status that we do not deserve, but that accurately reflects our willingness to follow the Lord Jesus. So in our world today, let's just stick with our culture Children might not be the best representative of someone low in status. We have families that totally structure around the kids, whether it's sports or talents or whatnot. But I think something that we could agree upon that does represent this type of person, low in status, uh, the last and the least, is the refugee. Now, in Ukraine presently, there's anywhere from two million to two and a half million refugees that are homeless, uh, they have no income, uh, they're totally dependent on the mercy and grace of God and the love of their neighbor. Uh, Nancy and I went to Dallas Seminary with a Ukrainian family. Uh, they are from Kiev, and they are both professors at Kiev Theological Seminary, and we've stayed in touch with them uh, ever since seminary. And we've been getting regular correspondence from them uh, in the midst of this humanitarian crisis. Uh, we got word that on uh, March 5th, uh, Natalia, the wife, and her two daughters uh, were able to uh, evacuate to Poland. And they're now safe in Poland. They're at a hotel. But they're, they're, the husband, the father, Alex, he stayed behind. And... Natalia wanted to explain that to, to us as well as others. And I'm going to read you a portion of her email explaining why her husband, Alex, stayed behind. She says, There are so many people seeking help. 
as my husband and others help, it is hard for them to hold back their tears as they hear people's stories, especially people coming from bombed out cities. Christian men, pastors, deacons, seminary professors, and students are deeply involved with helping people, including helping with evacuations, which is most scary of all. Alex is modeling for us this teaching of the Lord to deny yourself, bear your cross, and to serve the last and the least. Alex is doing this in the name of Jesus. He's not doing this for his own glory. He's doing this more than just because there's a need. He's doing this because he wants to love others in this circumstance. He wants to provide anything he can for these men, these women, these children who are in great need, the last and the least. And he's doing it in a horrific situation. And Bethel, uh, through the networking of, of Jeff, our missions pastor, he's established a giving link for us as a church to come alongside Kiev Theological Seminary. All of these professors, all of these pastors, all of these deacons, who are serving the refugees. And so this is an opportunity for us to see what the Lord is doing through these men who are following the Lord on the way of discipleship. And we can actually give financially to them. And those funds will be used by these men to serve the last and the least in the name of Jesus. And so we have now a giving link on our website. If you go to Bethel Bible com forward slash give you can tap on the make a payment to and scroll down and find ukraine and i encourage you to give uh, in this short window of opportunity that we have to minister to these refugees through our brothers such as alex or you can text the the phone 903-437-4437 text the word give and i encourage you to see this as an opportunity for us as the body of Christ to truly serve one another, though an ocean might separate us, the call is the same. It's the same call to follow the Lord. And our brother Alex is doing that. And so let's come alongside him and support him. So this is, this is what it means according to the, the instruction we have thus far. There's more instruction to come, but this is what it means to follow the Lord on the way of discipleship. Suffer first. There's joy in that suffering, but there's peril, there's danger. Suffer first. Why? Because that's the way God's designed it. He's digging down deep in our lives so that he might raise us up at the appropriate time. Glory later. And as we saw the two rejections of the disciples, they wanted the glory now. And oh, we do too in different ways. So what is this living hope that I keep referring to? If we're to suffer now and experience glory later, what is this living hope that propels us forward, that, that pulls us through the suffering our living hope pulling us forward amidst present suffering is our future glory shared with the Lord Jesus, our King. It's this glory that He has reserved for us in heaven when we get our resurrection bodies, when there is no more suffering. 
And we're going to see in chapter 9 a snapshot of that glory, a preview of the glory to come. And it's designed to capture our imagination. It's designed to be a shot in the arm to persevere through the suffering, to give us hope. Not hope in hope's sake, but hope in the Lord Jesus, a tangible, concrete hope that we can all grab hold of and hold on to. Read with me verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9 where we see the transfiguration of Jesus and its encouragement to us. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Stop with me there. So in verse 1, we have this proclamation of Jesus that there will be some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. The verses that follow are the fulfillment of that. The transfiguration is the snapshot of the kingdom coming with power. And we see in verses 2 and 3 that he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant and intensely white. This transfiguration is the Father revealing to the disciples and us the glory of the Lord Jesus. His heavenly appearance. What he set down as he clothed himself with humanity to be a servant. What's interesting is this brilliance, uh, this white. It's the quality of dress for heavenly beings, we know in other passages, as well as resurrected believers, or glorified believers, rather. But it's interesting. It's also the garment of martyrs. It's both. He's embodying for us there in that picture what he's commanding of us. Suffer first, glory later. They go together. Moses and Elijah there in verse 4, they have a significance in this passage to help us interpret its meaning. Uh, they're mostly there because culturally and biblically speaking, these two figures uh, would reappear at the coming of the long-expected messianic age. So they're witnesses, if you will, that, hey, this, this, this is the Messiah. He's bringing the messianic kingdom. This is him. Peter clearly got that. He, he's ready to build tents immediately. Now, these, these tents are to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which actually foreshadows uh, the coming of the Lord to reign and dwell with his people for all eternity. So 
Peter's ready to scramble. He's like, okay, the kingdom's here. It's come in power at last. Yes. But Peter misses it. He wants to build three tents for three prophets. He even calls Jesus rabbi. No. This Messiah, is, he's the king. He will have a throne. He is no prophet alone. He is our king. He will have a throne. And we see here that Peter missed it. He missed entirely who Jesus is, calling him rabbi. And the father interrupts Peter. And he says, this is my son. Now the term son or son of God is used very strategically in the gospel of Mark. Always in the context of the description of the kingdom of God. To be the son of God is to be God's representative king on earth. To have all authority. And the father is saying, this is my son. Listen to him. Now, you know what's fascinating in this passage? Up to this point, Jesus hasn't said a word. Peter's been doing all the yakking. Jesus hasn't said a word and the father says, listen to him. What are we supposed to listen to? In the preceding passion prediction, disciples rejection, instruction for discipleship, and the one that follows this, same thing. The author Mark, by the inspiration of the Spirit, uses the same word to introduce both of those. To teach. In both of those passages, Jesus starts off, or Mark starts off narrating, says Jesus began to teach. Jesus began to teach. Those terms are not used in between. They're used in 831 and then in 930. 930. So they're, they're signaling to us, what are we to listen to, Father? He's teaching on the way of discipleship. We are to understand and appropriate to our lives as disciples. If you're a believer here, you are a disciple. And what Mark is trying to do is he's trying to show us the way of discipleship. How you follow him now, presently. Jesus models that for us. Jesus instructs that for us. The Father says to listen to him. And he gives us this snapshot of glory as a shot in the arm, as an assurance of victory that it is worth it, that there is a finish line, and oh, is it worth running your race well to reach that finish line. So how do we endure our present sufferings as we, as we follow Jesus on the way? We grab hold of that future glory. We, we grab hold of it. We reach out for it. We, we ponder on it so that we can hang on during our present suffering. How do we endure? Grab hold of the future glory awaiting us so that we can hang on and our present suffering, so that we can follow the Lord as He leads through self-denial, bearing our cross, humble service, 
There's no life hack for this. There's no life hack for my, my brother Alex, our brother Alex, who has grabbed hold of that future glory and is hanging on presently through self-denial, through bearing his cross, through serving other refugees, bravely, I might add. He knows what is awaiting him. Although there is no life hack, there is something so much better. There is a future glory secured for us in heaven, manifested to us graciously by the Father as He transfigured our Lord Jesus. So brothers, let's grab hold of our future glory so that we can hang on, so that we can follow the Lord Jesus as He leads us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that you don't just give commands, that you're so much more, that you're a loving, gracious, heavenly Father, that you care deeply for us, so much so that you provide instruction on how we are to live. And through this instruction, though it's hard and countercultural, Lord, we know that in the midst of suffering, we can experience joy, and that we know that as you dig down deep in our lives, we will be raised up. I pray that we would desire the glory that you have waiting for us, that that would propel us forward. I pray that we would desire to follow our Lord Jesus as he leads us, that we would be men and women who adopt as our way of life the way of discipleship. We thank you that the Lord has made a way through his own death on the cross that we might be yours through faith in him. We pray all this in his name. Amen.